Thank you, George. I invite you to open your Bibles again to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Everybody seems quite infatuated with the British monarchy right now. I, I confess that's never been um, news that I've really followed. Even following Queen Elizabeth's death, I've not really followed much of the news. But as I thought about my passage this week, I wondered if maybe doing a little bit of investigation into the British monarchy may be appropriate. Because 1 Samuel 12 is about the coronation of King Saul. It got me thinking, what might a typical coronation look like so that I could compare what's going on in this coronation? And so I looked up a little bit about what happens at the coronation of a British monarch when they are crowned. When Queen Elizabeth was crowned, the Archbishop of Canterbury began the ceremony by saying to all who were present, Sirs, I here present unto you Elizabeth II, your undoubted queen. When Charles is crowned next year, the Archbishop will likewise say, Sirs, I here present unto you Charles III, your undoubted king. So this is the way a coronation ceremony begins, by presenting the monarch. And we find something very similar to that going on in 1 Samuel 12. So, so far, we're lined up. The passage actually begins in the last two verses of chapter 11, where Samuel, not the archbishop, but a priest and a prophet, gathers all of the people, not to Westminster Abbey, but to Gilgal. He gathers them there for a purpose, we're told in verse 14, to renew the kingdom. And there he makes Saul king. These last two verses of chapter 11, I believe, are the coronation of Saul in miniature. Then when we get to chapter 12, we see the details of what took place in that coronation ceremony. And at the very beginning, we read in verse 1 that Samuel did something similar to what the Archbishop of Canterbury does in the United Kingdom. Look at verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I've obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you. This idea is repeated in verse 13. Now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Two times. He says to the people, here's your king. Behold your king. But the reason he wants Israel to look upon this monarch is a little bit different than the reason the Archbishop of Canterbury calls the people present at Westminster Abbey 
to look upon their new monarch. What is the reason that Samuel calls Israel to behold their king? He draws their eyes to Saul because he wants to draw their attention to God. How does he do that? He does that in a couple of ways. The first thing he wants them to see is he wants them to see that they have rejected the Lord as their king. All that he says between these two behold statements in verse 1 and verse 13 illustrate and demonstrate that point. But that's not the only reason he calls them to behold their king. It's not only to show them that they've rejected God as king. Remember, the overarching purpose of this coronation is found in verse 14 of chapter 11, and that is to renew the kingdom. And so while he draws attention to their king, behold your king to indict them of their guilt of rejecting God as king, all of that is meant to lead them to a renewed relationship with God as king. You see, the only way for God's people to have a human ruler is if God remains the sovereign ruler in our lives. It's one of the major points of this sermon. The only way for the people of God to rightly live under human leadership is if God holds the proper place of leadership in our lives as King of kings and Lord of lords. Even the British coronation service says this much. After the king or queen is announced, they make an oath before the archbishop to uphold justice and mercy under God. Then following their oath, guess what happens? The new monarch is handed a Bible. In the same way that the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 were instructed upon becoming king to make a copy in their own hand of God's Word. Only after they make their oaths under God and are given God's Word are they then anointed, robed, and crowned. Earlier this week, I read a sermon from the Archbishop of Canterbury at Elizabeth's funeral service. I don't really know anything about the faith of the Archbishop or the faith of Queen Elizabeth for that matter. I'm not going to comment on that. There was just a line in the sermon that stood out to me that I want to share with you. The Archbishop said, In 1953, the Queen began her coronation with silent prayer just there. At the high altar. Her allegiance to God was given before any person gave allegiance to her. That's the picture we need to begin with if we're going to understand 1 Samuel 12. Before the coronation, she begins in prayer. After she makes her oaths, she's given a Bible. The Word and prayer 
are the right posture of every human ruler who has ever been given a position of authority. Under God. Dependent upon God. With full allegiance to God. But regardless of whether any human leader actually does those things, we as the people who follow them are to have God be the sovereign King, the Lord of Lords. The coronation of Saul is really unusual because it begins with a long rebuke. A long rebuke that Israel has rejected the Lord as their king. This is because the tendency for human leadership to loom too large in our mind is real. It's real. But the reminder of the guilt of Israel serves a much greater purpose. We need to acknowledge our tendency to reject God as king if we are to renew our relationship with God as the rightful and sovereign So bear those two things in mind as we read this passage. Would you now please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now... Behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And He sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies." that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerobel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel 
and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourself a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, You shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this passage is divided into two parts that differ just slightly from your paragraphs that you have in your translation. I see the first part as verses 1 through 13, which is really a court case where Samuel is serving as a prosecuting attorney, making his case before the Lord, as is repeated throughout this passage. In the end, Israel is seen to be guilty of rejecting God as king. The second part, which begins in verse 14 with these conditional statements and runs through 25, I think is like a covenant renewal ceremony, like something you would find in Deuteronomy or in Joshua chapter 24. Here Samuel is teaching the people who have rejected God as king how to renew their relationship with their covenant king. So if the first section is establishing Israel's guilt... The second section is laying out God's grace. So that's how we'll divide our time. 
Let's begin with the court case. Samuel begins his speech by saying, Behold, I have obeyed your voice. I have made a king over you. So that's that, here's your king type of thing. But then he goes on to say something a little odd. I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are before you. So he puts Saul before them, but he's also putting all of the reasons they asked for a king before them. Just by way of reminder, of establishing. Remember the context of where you asked for a king? You came to me and you said, you're old and you're gray and your sons do not walk in your way, so give us a king like all of the nations. That was the reason for the request. But now Samuel will go on to see whether or not they were justified in their request. Were they? He intends to show them in what follows that they were not. And to establish his case, he brings forward three parties to take the stand so that he may cross-examine them. But it's curious. The first person he examines is himself. Samuel is put in the stand. Samuel is put in the dock. And just by way of a little side application, there will be times if we are being faithful Christians where we will need to confront a brother or sister to exhort them. Before we do so, we ought first to examine ourselves. And I think that's what's going on here, at least in part. Samuel asked Israel to testify against him before the Lord and before his anointed. Have I taken your ox or your donkey? Have I defrauded you or oppressed you? Have I received any bribes in my role as your judge and your leader? They acknowledge in verse 4 that he hasn't. He has been faithful as a judge, as a priest, and as a prophet. I think the second reason he asks these questions is he's establishing his credibility. He's establishing ethos, so to speak. Credibility to serve as the prosecuting attorney in the case that is followed. His name's been cleared. And so now he brings the second party to the stand. He puts God in the dock. In order to understand what's going on in chapter 12, we have to be reminded that the relationship that God had with Israel was a covenant relationship. And in that covenant relationship, God made certain promises to his people And the people, in turn, made promises to be faithful to God. This whole thing is about faithfulness. Samuel's getting ready to question Israel's faithfulness to God, but before he goes there, he wants to establish whether or not God has been faithful to the covenant that he made with his people. Has God been faithful? The answer is, is driven home with absolute clarity. God has been completely faithful to His people from the very beginning. Ever since He established a covenant with Israel, He has been faithful. From the time of Moses and Aaron, 
all the way through the period of Joshua and judges up to Samuel, who is the last judge in that period. He has been faithful. When Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they cried out to God and God remembered the covenant that He had made with His people. And He delivered them. But Israel, as they came into the land, forgot their God. And so the Lord disciplined His people by giving them over to their enemies. But whenever the people of God cried out to God and confessed their sin and asked for deliverance, the Lord answered their prayer. It happened over and over again in cycles. He would raise up a judge for them who would deliver them. God has been faithful throughout all of their history. But the question before Israel now is, have they been faithful in their covenant to God? So Israel is now the third person to come into the dock for cross-examination. Look at verse 12. They don't stay up there very long before the case is established. He continues his discourse, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. We are meant to feel something after this litany of You were delivered over to all of these enemies, but then you cried out to God and then He raised up a judge and delivered you from them. When we're told about Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, we should expect the next line to be that Israel cried out to God and asked for deliverance. But instead, they said, no, we want a king like the nation's to be placed over us. The way the relationship is supposed to work is that people are to see their sinfulness and to cry out for God for mercy, knowing that even though they have been unfaithful, that God remains faithful to His covenant to His people and He will deliver them. Friends, that's how you maintain a right relationship with God. It's not by ceasing to sin. Because that's not going to happen. It's by confessing your sin and turning to God and asking Him to save you, to forgive you from your sin. But that's not what Israel does. Instead of crying out to God, they ask for a king like the nations. The evidence is in. The people are guilty. They've rejected their God as king. And to drive the point home, Samuel ends this section of his speech right where he began it in verse 1. Look at verse 13. Now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Do you see the point? I don't think the point would have been lost on Israel. After hearing this litany of God's faithfulness throughout 
the centuries to His people, of delivering them, of being trustworthy and true. Samuel says, here's your king. What a foolish choice. What insanity. To go for a human leader over against their covenant God. Madness! But more than madness, Samuel calls it evil. Wickedness. Sin. But remember, the main goal of Samuel's speech is not to indict Israel. It is a necessary goal to remind them of their guilt, but it is not the ultimate goal. The goal is not to get rid of Saul either, or to delegitimize Saul. In fact, part of the purpose of this coronation service is to legitimize Saul's reign. However, they need to learn how to live under the rule of a human leader. And so they need to be convicted of their guilt, but they also need to receive God's grace so that they can be restored to a right relationship with God. And so let's move from guilt to grace. Beginning in verse 14, Samuel starts telling Israel how things can be right. How can they live under Saul, this human monarch, without forsaking their relationship with God. Sure, their relationship with God has been broken, but there is a way for it to be restored. The covenant can be renewed. And I want to highlight three steps in this renewal process. They apply to Israel during this time, but I would say they really just give us a picture of how we should live every day of our lives as believers. Or, if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus, they give a picture of how you can come to be in right relationship with God today. The first step to renew our relationship with God is we must repent of our rebellion. Verse 16. Samuel tells the people to stand and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Verse 17, we learn that the context is it's the wheat harvest, a time of the year where there's never rain in Israel. Never rain in Israel. And so the stage is set. Samuel says, I'm going to call out to the Lord for Him to bring thunder and rain. The thunder and rain will be a miraculous sign that the Lord is witnessing all of the proceedings here at Gilgal. Also be a miraculous sign that will remind Israel of a previous time when there was a lot of thunder. At Mount Sinai, where the covenant was established with Israel for the first time. It will be a clear sign that God is making a judgment in this situation. Israel has broken their covenant with God. They are guilty. And so in verse 18, the thunder and the rain come, and the response of the people is fear. They fear the Lord's judgment because of their rebellion. So in verse 19, they say to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, 
that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves for a king. The whole narrative thus far has been driving to this point to show them their guilt. And they get it. They say, not only have we sinned in this situation, this is simply adding on top of all of the sins that we've committed throughout our lives and that our fathers before us committed as well. They have come to their knees. They have come to realize that they are sinners. But again, remember, the main purpose of this passage is not to convict of guilt, it's to show them grace. But here's the linchpin. Here is critical theology for the Gospel. You can't understand the grace of God if you don't understand your guilt and God's judgment. But once we see our guilt, we are meant to receive God's grace. And that's the second step in a renewed relationship with God. Look at verses 20 to 22. Samuel says to the people, Do not be afraid, for you have done all of this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. I want you to get the progression that's going on in this passage so far with this key word, fear. So long as the people remain in their sin, they have every reason to be afraid of God's judgment. But now Samuel is saying, if you repent of your sins, you don't have to be afraid. You can receive God's mercy. There's a contrast that's happening in these verses. A contrast between us and God. We are, as the hymn says, prone to wander. Do you agree with me? We tend to forsake the Lord. We tend to turn aside from following the Lord and to turn aside to empty things that cannot profit or deliver. This is Samuel's way of saying we turn to idols. And in this case, Israel was not bowing down to the Baals or the Ashtara poles. They had made this monarchy an idol. Uh Uh-oh. It's pretty relevant for us today too, isn't it? They had made government an idol. They had forsaken the Lord. But here's the contrast. The Lord Himself is not like that. While we are prone to forsake the Lord, He will not forsake His people. If we repent of our sin, we will be restored to a right relationship with God. How does this work out? God is zealous for His own glory. He alone is the sovereign King over all. 
The Scriptures teach that very clearly. His name alone is worthy of being made great throughout all of the earth. Do you agree with me? But God's glory is seen most clearly not through these demonstrations of power, as important as they are, but God's glory is seen most clearly through His grace. That's what I think Samuel means when he says, for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. God is glorified through redeeming His people. His name is made great when He rescues them from their sin. When He extends His grace to them and forgives them. In the Old Covenant, God mediated His grace through prophets and through priests. The covenant was mediated in part through the offer of animal sacrifice as well. Samuel was the mediator of God's grace. And even though he is serving as a prosecuting attorney, he is still gracious unto them. I want you to think about that for a moment. What has Samuel just been doing throughout this passage so far? He's been taking Israel to the cleaners. but He is still a mediator of God's grace to the people. We think that those two things can't hold together. You can't be somebody who rebukes and somebody who loves. But actually, if we really love people who are trapped in sin, we will bring that sin to light. Samuel not only served as a prosecutor, he also prayed for the people and preached God's Word to them so that they may be restored to God. That's why he says in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Samuel had served as a judge for many years, but those days were now over now that Saul had taken the throne. But Samuel continued to mediate God's grace and covenant as a priest and a prophet. For us in the new covenant, we no longer have priests and prophets like Samuel, but we still have a mediator of the covenant. There still has to be a covenant that is established if we are to receive the grace of God. Thankfully, we have an even better mediator of the covenant than Samuel. We have Jesus, who mediates God's Word to us. John calls Him the very Word of God. He makes known God's glorious path of redemption and that the Son of God laid down His life for the sheep. Through His death, we can now be forgiven of our sins. But also, He mediates God's grace through serving as our great high priest. He lives to make intercession for us. 
So when we sin, and we will, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, we can be prone as we continue in this cycle of sin to get really discouraged. Do you feel that way? I've really felt that way this week. Sometimes we may even be prone to say, I just give up. I'm just going to continue to indulge in the sin. Nothing's ever going to change. But the process of the Christian life is that when we come under conviction of sin by God's Word, we are also reminded of God's grace that is also spelled out in His Word and that Jesus is living to make intercession for us so that we can turn back to God time and time and time again and renew our fellowship with God. That is the pattern of the Christian life. And friends, think about this. God is glorified every time that happens in your life. Every time Israel cried out to God for deliverance, He delighted to save them. Every time we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is to His great delight and His glory. But did you know that He is not only glorified as He extends grace to us? This is where we often stop as evangelicals. He is also glorified through our obedience to Him. And that is the third step in renewing our relationship with God. We must realign our lives with God's reign. Israel sinned in rejecting God as king. They have now received God's grace, but that doesn't mean that they do not now submit to God as king. God is their Savior, but He is also their Lord. The beginning of this passage, Samuel says, I have obeyed your voice. Now beginning in verse 14, he says, it's time to obey the voice of the Lord. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord, there's our word fear again, and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord. And if you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. Verse 24, this is repeated. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart. In light of Israel's sin, they feared God's judgment. In light of God's grace, Samuel says, don't be afraid. But they are nevertheless called to fear the Lord. It's just that fearing the Lord now means that we follow the Lord wholeheartedly. We acknowledge that He is God and that we are not. That He is God and our human leaders and kings are not. We acknowledge as we consider His ways and all He has done for us over time that there is nobody that we would rather follow and give our wholehearted allegiance to. We will not split time between submitting to God and submitting to other idols. We will show His supreme worth and glory 
through wholehearted devotion to Him. When we run after idols, we prove that we really don't see God as worthy. So in this renewal process, we see our sin, we receive God's grace, but then we renew our conviction that God is Lord and worthy of our full devotion. And if you're faltering in believing that He is worthy of your full devotion, Samuel tells us to consider what great things God has done for you. That's where he began his court case, right? recounting all of the great works of God. That's where he ends here as well. If you're in doubt about whether or not God is good and whether or not He is worthy of your allegiance, just consider all that He has done supremely in what He has done in Jesus Christ. And maybe that will rid you of the idols that you are so prone to bow down to. This is particularly relevant, I have to say, as I close, in the realm of politics. In fact, I'd be remiss if I did not mention this. Israel's sin was that they wanted a king like the nations. Having a king was not sinful in and of itself. God wanted to establish a monarchy. And God has, in His wisdom set up all kinds of human governments throughout history, including today. Whether it's a constitutional monarchy in the UK, or whether it's our own constitutional republic here, government is instituted by God. It can be a very good thing. And yet, when government looms too large in our mind, when we look to the government or any human leader for that matter as a replacement for God, then we have made government an idol. How do you know if you have made government an idol? Well, are you more concerned with what's going wrong in the government than whether or not the church is living under God's reign? I mean, really. Like, what troubles you? That this country is slipping into debauchery and that we have crummy leaders in place? Is that your chief concern or is your chief concern the holiness of the church? Is it the kingdom of America or is it the kingdom of God that concerns you most? What do you talk about more? What do you think about more? What do you spend more time reading about? If we are to live in right relationship with human authority, which we are to do, we have to walk in right relationship with God. And walking in right relationship with God means that we see Him as sovereign. That means over all rule and authority. That we see Him as supreme, as more valuable, and as more glorious than any human or any human institution. And if we do, it will be seen in our lives. And it will be seen in our words. 
And so how do we as the people of God live rightly under human leaders? That's the question of this chapter. The answer is we can only do so when we live in right relationship with God. And we have to renew that relationship every Sunday and every day through repenting of our sins, receiving God's grace, and then yet again, day in and day out, hour in and hour out, minute in and minute out, realigning our lives under the reign of God. Let us pray. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. To leave the God that I love. Thankfully, although we are often unfaithful, you, God, are faithful. I pray that we would delight in your leadership in our lives. And that that delight would help us to turn from our sins, to receive your mercy which is greater than our sins, and to follow you faithfully. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.